shortly after I received the news about the Nobel Prize, and there was the subsidence of the excitement that it created, a very close friend and longtime colleague, himself a Nobel laureate, warned me of the impending changes in my life. Now, he said, you're going to be expected to comment expertly on such matters as our Soviet and China policies, nuclear disarmament, the state of the economy, as well as some of the most confounding moral and ethical problems of our times. He never warned me that I would have to face 450 of the brightest young people this country has produced. But it is an opportunity which I welcome, and so far in the day that I've spent here, uh, I've enjoyed enormously meeting and talking with some of the young people at our meal schedules. And so it's uh, with special pride and honor that I share this occasion with all of you. And I think uh, on the basis of what I've heard, I think there's good reason for optimism that our country will be in good hands. We could use about 45,000 more of you, but I think what we have will have to do. Now, I think all of you who have come this far have probably already recognized that achievement is not exclusively from an individual effort. All of you have had enormous help and encouragement along the way, as did I. My parents, who were not formally educated, nevertheless held education in very high esteem and encouraged me all the time to aim to become an educated person without specifying any particular field or uh, type of uh, uh, job. But most of all, as I had marvelous teachers, and last night in speaking to one of the students, she told me that her interest in biology was uh, created by an absolutely marvelous teacher in the small high school in which she goes. And each of us, I think, can look back on the people who inspired us and helped us to fashion our objectives. I was very fortunate in having a woman who was not even a teacher, but actually ran a biology club after school and encouraged us to ask questions, difficult questions, and try to design or find answers to them through experimentation. But most important, at least in my career, have been the colleagues and the students with which I've been associated. Many people think that those of us who obtain the awards and appear on podia, much of this, are the people who do the work. But in fact, in science, it is most often the students, the postdoctoral fellows, and the inspiration from them that actually moves the science along. And over the years, I've been extremely fortunate in having a stellar group of young people who have gone on to make their mark elsewhere, but who certainly helped the science that went on in my own laboratory. 
I think what's important about being around smart and exciting people is the effect they have on each of us. They bring out the best. They cause us to stretch, to both meet their own ideals and their own aspirations, as well as our own. I think that the years that I remember most vividly as the greatest adventure of my life was when I was put together with six or seven other young, very promising, talented scientists when we created the biochemistry department at Stanford and the interplay of, our, of the stimulation and the interest in each other's work that caused all of us, I think, to mature and achieve a I'll say a greatness, with some modesty, unfortunately, that, uh, that all of them have achieved. And for me, it's not the achievement itself. It's the high that one obtains along the way. The night that I accepted the Nobel Award, I made the comment that the prize was only a secondary uh, benefit. The actual discovery, the chance to know something and find something that nobody had ever known before, was an extremely exciting experience that we all have had on one occasion or another, unfortunately all too infrequently. But nevertheless, that in itself is what is worth remembering rather than the accolades that come afterwards. I think what science has given me is a chance to ask questions, important questions, to solve puzzles, and to learn things that nobody has known before. I encourage each of you who have such aspirations to give it a try, because it is an exciting career. I want to end, because I think it says probably most uh, beautifully what I had in mind. It is a quotation from J. Robert Oppenheimer, and it has always had a strong motivating influence on my life and career. And he said, although we are sure not to know everything, and rather likely not to know very much, we can nevertheless know anything that is known to man. And with some luck and a good deal of sweat, we may even find out some things that have never been known before. And I hope you'll remember that. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jeremiah Scharf from New York, um, New York City. And I was wondering, some scientists propose that soon it may be possible to choose specific genes on, to choose traits for genetically engineered babies. And I was wondering, what was your view on this application of genetics from an ethical standpoint? Unfortunately, the sound isn't really great, so some of the thing, but I think I'll, I'll try to repeat what I think you said. I think you were raising uh, the question about are we ever likely to be able to change the genetic makeup of human beings and thereby engineer uh, traits into babies, and what did I think about the moral and ethical implications of that? Well. First of all, it's a long, long, long way off, if ever possible. 
much of the work that's going on now is trying to identify the nature of the defects that cause very serious and life-threatening diseases. It, wouldn't, it may surprise most of you if I say that all human disease is genetic in origin. And therefore, our major aim at the moment is to identify those genes which are responsible for major human diseases. Some of us aspire to the hope that by understanding the structure of genes, that we may someday be able to come up with logical approaches to their treatment, prevention, or cure. But I think it is far beyond us to even be imagining the ability to change traits, because many human traits are, in fact, the end result of the input of many genes, none of which have even been identified. And having not identified them, it's impossible to think about how one could manipulate their structure or to change them or to, in fact, uh, try to create tailor-made individuals. Moreover, I think most scientists agree it would be a stupid thing to do. So there isn't, that I see, a great contending force out there prepared to or ambitious enough to want to direct uh, human evolution along their own master plans. I think uh, I, and certainly many of my colleagues, would oppose any such efforts, even if they surface, which they haven't. I'm James Gurton from San Antonio, California. Um, Dr. Berg, what sort of problems do you see in the future of genetic engineering, um, and what sort of moral standards would you apply? Did I hear you say, what do I foresee as some of the future developments in genetic engineering, and what moral? Or some of the problems in the future. Um, and then, yeah, what, what moral standards would you apply? Okay. Are these uh, blinking uh, red lights uh, for me? Sorry. <laughs> We're okay. Uh, well, we've already seen the tip of the iceberg. One aspect which is developing, which we all refer to as genetic engineering, is in fact the ability to make completely new kinds of drugs, drugs which never could have been foreseen uh, in earlier days. These are drugs based on natural products which can now be manufactured in commercial quantities to be used for therapeutic purposes. We have a whole list of them. We have growth hormone, human insulin, the TPA for uh, heart attacks. And in the next 10 years, there's going to be an increasing number of such important products that will be exceedingly helpful in human medicine. So that's one. Second area which is developing very rapidly is the ability to make almost unambiguous diagnoses of human disease very early in human development, generally in utero. Being able to identify such uh, problems or impending problems really confronts society with an important dilemma, and that is how we deal with the problem of knowing that there is, in fact, a defective uh, fetus uh, developing. 
This is a societal problem, it's a moral problem, it's an individual problem. And I think with the contending forces that we have in our country now about the pros and cons for abortion, uh, this is a very important issue in medicine today. The other thing is, is that we're now embarking on a very great adventure to, in fact, understand the complete chemical structure of the human genome, the genome being the complete complement of all of our genetic makeup. And before some 20 years are out, we will have that entire chemical structure. And when we know it, it's going to give us a basis for very uh, significant kinds of insights into human nature, our origins, and the basis of the disease. We have not yet in our society developed the basis for dealing with that kind of information. To give you an example, it will be possible probably within five to eight or ten years to be able to identify specific genetic markers characteristic of each individual which provide predictive value for determining the likelihood of developing various kinds of diseases, juvenile diabetes, multiple sclerosis, and so on. And the question is, who should know that? Should the government know that? Should industry know what our genetic makeup is and what that portends for the future? How can that information be used or misused? And this is another area which I think society will have to contend with as we move along. That technology is developing, it's going to be used, and we have not yet developed the capability or the wisdom of using that information intelligently.